everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're going to just say that for the first six months yeah. until we get to say Happy Halloween <laughs> for I, the I, last six months. I, 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 well, yeah. Well, <laughs> usually for me, it goes New Year, and then by February, it's Happy Halloween, and we're back in the Halloween. <laughs> okay. So there's Fair. two seasons for me. Fair. I would say that this is the first year that I haven't felt... We talked about this in... Um, episodes before Christmas where I always say January kind of feels like this emotional hangover and da, da, da. and despite all that you know that being in the throes of hell of Omicron and all the stuff that's going on in the world I have to say this is the first January in a long time where I'm like ho- like hopeful for this new year and Good. I don't feel like the the, the hangover the hangover all. of like I miss I, I think I did such a good job this year it really you know I was with family spent a good month really solidly um celebrating Christmas and all that. By the time it was over, I'm like, I feel good about I how I did that. <laughs> I didn't just race right through it. Cause sometimes the holidays feel like they, like they're over in a blink. Yeah. And so, yeah, January has been good so far. I can't complain. I think sometimes that's the case when we get out of our average environment. Yeah. You know, you were still working and all that when you were away mm-hmm. and we recorded remotely and we did all the things we do, but you're, when you're out of your regular mojo and you don't have like all the things around you in your room that you need to do mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have all those like little tentacles of energy like drawing your focus because that's exhausting for sure so yeah that's awesome i'm happy for you happy 2022 today on the show we are going to talk about city of angels city of death but we have also curated and created a full-on true crime episode for you all so we're gonna start with some true crime news i'm gonna do some ridiculous what the hell stuff which is one of the segments we've developed over the last four years on the show i'm about it and then later on we're gonna talk about two or three other true crime documentaries that kathy and i have independently watched kind of like when we do our horror watches we're just gonna talk about some other things and then the meat of the show is us discussing city of angels city of death so there it is Kathy, would you please start with some true crime news for us? I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the the furthest out and then the more recent of that the two stories. Awesome. So this is for many of us, this is older news now, but just like with any verdict, there's always information that follows after we get it. So we've talked to, uh, we opened the season talking about Britney Spears and her conservatorship, and um, we opened the season uh, in the midst of the trial and criticizing. Uh, just having a discussion around, you know, the way that they were managing the case and managing the trial and what they were expecting and what they were asking and how they made mental health such a big deal. And then we have this verdict. Dad now decides that he wants to remove himself from being the conservator, shut that down, which is great news. But it also shows you that dad was sort of in control of whether we regarded Brittany as mentally ill or not because all of a sudden that just went away when dad decided you know dad was the one who was really holding all of that hostage and since that verdict since or since the closing of the case i should say a couple of things have come up people are obviously going to have their opinions i think the majority of people are going thank god this woman has been trapped in this like a child she's been you know traumatized and all of this and in team Brittany, let's go um, and I would be on that side. You know, I think she she's going to, just like anybody who's been um, in a situation like that, I think I would recommend as, as a psychologist, I would recommend now you need to get with a therapist and work on your life and start managing. That would be the healthy thing to do. Because of course, now what we're seeing are people who are on team dad that are saying, yeah, you know, we're not really sure if she's mentally stable and was it the best thing to remove the conservatorship? So there's an article on cheatsheet.com. I think it's, it's from January 8th. So it's, it's fairly recent. And it says on January 6th, Spears posted a mirror selfie wearing only a choker and a pair of stockings in the nude photos. Spears covered her private parts with pink emojis. The singer also disabled comments on the post. Free woman energy has never felt better. After Spears posted the photos, Reddit users suggested Spears should still be under conservatorship. So I'm going to make a comment on that in a second, but I'll, I'll read the quote. I'm going to go ahead and just agree with this. Her dad and those people that have more problems 
less kept her in prison for the 13 years needed to go. But someone needs to be responsible for her. Like you said, she has never been given the tools to learn to be an actual responsible adult. This was on the thread. Another person agreed with that, said, I agree with this. I think there was a reason she was in the conservatorship for so long. Okay, so... I'm just going to say if that's what people are basing the necessity of a conservatorship to be, uh, I don't know. I think we can throw Kanye West in there. I think that we can throw Donald Trump in there. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like any <laughs> any celebrity that exploits themselves. Absolutely. For their career. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think. <laughs> no, and, just no. <laughs> yeah, just no. I mean, first of all, I think that what we're seeing is an extreme and somewhat expected reaction to a freedom that she's never had. She hasn't found that balance yet. Yeah, she probably does need to be in therapy and she's probably going to need some guidance, but that is not equivalent to needing a conservator. No, Shannon, may you please remind our <laughs> listeners what a conservator does. Makes all of their decisions for them and keeps them, I mean, including mental health, whether they can access their children, whether they can access medical care, whether they can access a therapist, all of that. So, right. I mean, I was about to say, well, she's probably been seeing a therapist all along. And then I'm thinking, well, no, dad probably didn't let her or maybe he did. I don't know. But yeah, like he would have been the arbiter of that decision. I, I think that it's so common to to see um female celebrities get pathologized as crazy or unstable, just like we do in society. They're just like, oh, she's hysterical. She's emotional. You know, we've had people make similar comments about Angelina Jolie without knowing her or knowing her situation because her father did a very similar thing, which was make broad strokes about her mental health to the country. And based on certain, um, decisions that Angelina made for whatever reason she did, those became incredibly criticized. And then every little thing she did became micromanaged. And now she's this, you know, borderline person and then playing in girl interrupted. It's like, Oh, she just played herself. We don't know Angelina Jolie. <laughs> no, right. We do not. So uh, I just want to kind of put that out there that it's like, uh, you know, women expressing themselves and, and coming out of the situation that she did, you know, I'm, I fully support, the conservator conservatorship being removed, but yeah, of course, do I think she needs help and do I think she needs support? Yes. But that is not the same thing as needing a conservator. Agreed. So go Brittany. I, we we're rooting for you and we want to, I think all of us who have watched this happen that are on your side, just really want her to do well. Yeah. And it's, it's also not about Brittany being perfect. That's right. Is kind of yeah. What's my the thing. threshold? If right? I say if I say go Britney, free Britney, or if I jump on any of those kind of bad wagons, it's not because I'm going black and white for the other side. It's because I'm saying she doesn't meet the criteria for it anymore. That's and right. if she ever did, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the specifics. We're not of those evaluating things. her. I didn't evaluate her. I don't know Britney Spears. I don't know her dad. I don't know anything except what I read, which is of course skewed. Yeah, our media skews it towards their agenda so i mean i'm often of the mind of not believing anything so from what i know from what i read she doesn't meet the criteria the court said so yeah and yeah you know Move, moving on yeah moving on and no she's not going to be perfect i'm sure she's not a perfect mother i'm sure she's not a perfect right. person none of us are so yes she's gonna show us her hoo-ha and all the rest of it and here's what would happen if but she so does 55 other different right. people the kardashian family you know uh, yeah included and i would say this too if she were to show some polarized response to this that would be pathologized as well yeah. she's shut down now she's depressed she's a different person yep Oh no! Right. There'd be a comment about anything. I mean, here we, you know, we're we're sitting here commenting commenting on it. So I'm not saying that we're not we comment on things too. We so have a lot of opinions. Everybody's <laughs> going to comment on something, and so everybody's going to either agree, disagree, have whatever opinions they're going to have. But none of it matters when it comes down to like being conserved. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like my opinion doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. Her dad's opinion doesn't matter. Like doesn't. just the evaluators. Sorry. Yep. All so, right. So I'm going to move into being opinionated in this next oh, thing. Cause you weren't right. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to continue that. Yeah. Okay. what I meant. Fair. So this is a little bit more recent. Um, I believe it's from end of December, like around, around Christmas, this trial happened of, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who was known to be Jeffrey Epstein's wingman or wingwoman for a while. For many years, she was on trial 
for, you know, assisting and grooming a lot of these young women to sleep with Jeffrey among all these other celebrities. And so she was found guilty of sex trafficking minors. And there have been a lot of different opinions behind this case. This is where I think gender also plays a big role because I think it's assumed that because she's a woman, she couldn't potentially be or possibly be guilty of doing something like this, uh, that somehow she played a, uh, she was also a victim in this. We had watched a, a documentary on Jeffrey Epstein a while back and talked about it on the show. And then I watched something on Gieslane a few months ago. And there is, I just want to clarify that there is something to be said about women who have been fallen victim to sex trafficking and then being pulled in and groomed to groom for their perpetrators. That is something that does happen. And these are uh, laws that are currently being um, evaluated because the courts are a little confused and how much do we penalize somebody that went through years of their own abuse and then, you know, that was modeled to them and then it becomes like, you know, someone, it's just like someone who's abused goes on to be an abuser. I think it's pretty arguable that that is not what happened with Maxwell. Mm. She was not someone who was, uh, as far as I know, and and I, I might be wrong, and if I'm, I'm wrong, please correct me. My understanding was that was not the case. She was, hi- she was highly educated, philanthropist, had known Jeffrey for a long time. They, you know, had their own relationship that in my eyes, she was incredibly just as guilty and in some ways used her gender to build trust with these women. And just a really unfortunate story that all of these women actually had to be subjected to her as well, because we'd like to think that women are, we're able to trust each other, we help each other get out of dangerous situations. And this was someone who was doing a lot of the dirty work for Jeffrey. Well, and like a hierarchy, she also had women under her. That's right. That would then, that were more like the girl's age and then would recruit them like as a peer. Many of the ones that had already been victimized. Yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. there was there was kind of a hierarchy going on there. Now, one could argue that the lower people on that hierarchy, the younger women, were maybe victims of That's what right. you're talking about, That's right. their own trauma. They were being blackmailed to keep getting other people in. Which is um, why it was so easy to get them to do the work, right? Yeah, it strikes me, because of course, as soon as you said it, I thought, Remember Heidi Fleiss? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a very quick conclusion when someone is a pimp. Yep. To go towards them being at fault. But when there's, it's actually sexual, vi- like this is violence. There's no sex workers actually agreeing to it, even though we could argue all day long about each person's trauma leading mm-hmm. to them to that life, sure, et cetera. Sure. But they make mindful decisions to work under someone's employ, doing a work, mm-hmm. getting paid, et cetera. This was kidnapping and yeah. assault and sexual battery and rape and all of the different yeah. things. And we're not real quick to blame the woman. <laughs> I mean, I want to, I want to blame her. Yeah. She's, she seems absolutely culpable in this. She, she was found guilty of five federal charges, sex trafficking of a minor, transporting a minor, minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity and three related counts of conspiracy. It's, it's ironic that you said that too, because later on in the, in the show, I'm going to talk about a documentary that I watched that actually back during, you know, the era that we're going to get into seventies and eighties, it was actually much more common to charge the woman as the prostitute and the Johns and the pimps, they yeah. let them go. So it's all nutty. It's all nutty. And it all gets switched around depending on what, what the crimes are, what the crimes are, what we're focusing on, where we are in money. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the other thing that happened that day too, is the same day that, that she was convicted. I read another article where the, where the prison guards that they were investigating for his quote unquote suicide slash murder. People were thinking he was murdered by the prison guards. They were exonerated on the same day. So it's a really interesting mm. situation. It it's is very complex. Uh, we don't know. We don't know what happened. I didn't dig into that story yet, but 
the same pretty much the same day or the next day there was a smaller article where the prison guards were exonerated and they're not investigating them anymore for jeffrey's death yeah this is this is this is and this is nowhere near done because now they're trying to go after prince andrew and he keeps you know being incredibly condescending i have no idea what you're talking about and i didn't do it even though there's fifty thousand pictures that's of one me way to go Total um, denial. <laughs> and another thing to remember too, if this this is federal court, so there were only so many charges that they could charge her with. If this would have been a different court, if we were looking at this at a state level, then there could have been more sexual abuse uh, charges. But there's statutes of limitation when it comes to how long someone can actually report the abuse. But the sex trafficking is really what they caught her on because I don't believe there's any statutes of limitations around that. But it, let's say if the there weren't around the other, she would have had so many more charges because I do believe that there were cases where she was involved in the sex acts and things like that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of detail there. And I imagine there'll be a lot of books. Yeah. So one lady was set free and one is going away for a long time. Yeah. And now for something completely different. I have a few what the hell stories. Yay. Let's lighten it up. So, I always bring the heavy. <laughs> what the hell? <clears throat> what the hell? These are true crime stories, news stories, crime stories that make you say, huh? Things that make you go, what hmm? the hell? So this was submitted by one of our listeners whose moniker is 452. It's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Police in Scranton say they found over 50 bags of heroin, cash, and loose change in a woman's vagina during a cavity search. This is kind of like the haunted vagina. I bring the vagina. You do. Good job, 452. I think that's why 452 shared this with me. Yeah. (laughs) We were talking about the haunted vagina, which for those of you who don't regularly listen to the show, is a book that we are making our. I am making my way through, we're, and I'm sharing with it with you. Yeah, we are going through it with because you because no one should have to do it alone. Karen Macaliunas, 27 years old, was detained last weekend. Let me see what the date on this is. Uh, March 22nd, 2011. So this is a bit ago. Karen was detained following a crash according to authorities karen it's um yeah it's effective name in this situation scranton police say they found three bags of heroin in her jacket and after being taken to the police station she told investigators she had more hidden in her vagina who says that oh by the way i have more in my vagina I would think she was kidding. I'd probably laugh. A doctor performed a search. Thank God it was the doctor. A doctor performed a search and recovered 54 bags of heroin, 31 empty bags used to package heroin, prescription pills, and $51.22. How much? (laughs) $51.22. The twenty-two were cents they all pennies? You, right? Were they all pennies? <laughs> no, uh, she was jailed on twenty-five thousand dollars bail on charges including possession with intent to deliver controlled sub- substance. So, just wanted to share that with you. Thank you four five two for that. Appreciate it. That's a good one. Yeah. So this next story is only about four months ago, much more recent, and it was submitted by another one of our listeners, the Pepper Flake. Women, woman arrested after faking sign language to become interpreter for U.S. police. <laughs> oh, my God. So I've seen the video. It's hilarious. Oh there God. is a video, but I got to. Is she just like throwing up whatever signs? I got to tell you, it's hilarious. So this is in Florida, Kathy. Of course it is. <laughs> Sorry, Floridians, but you guys have some good what the hell shit <laughs> yeah you do hearing impaired people tune tuning in to a news conference about the arrest of a suspected serial killer got a message of gibberish from an asl interpreter as tampa police chief brian dugan announced the arrest of hal Donis- donaldson wednesday night again this is four months ago interpreter derlin roberts was there beside him making signs that made no sense She sat up there and waved her arms (laughs) like she was singing Jingle Bells, Rachel Centembrino, who is deaf and teaches ASL at the University of South Florida, told the Tampa Bay Times through an interpreter. (laughs) So among the things Roberts (laughs) signed, according to her, (laughs) was the following. 51 hours ago, 0, 12, 22, and then an indecipherable chunk. 
murder three minutes in 40, 14 weeks ago in old indecipherable murder <laughs> four five fifty five thousand plea <laughs> ten arrest murder bush indecipherable oh my three gosh. age 24 <laughs> Apparently this woman just started like writing down what the woman was signing. So she was signing some things were real. So it was like a half ass. Apparently she knows her numbers in sign language because that's a, there's like a lot of numbers. Oh my she God. knows the word murder. But then there was a and there was a lot of indecipherable in there. In fact, the chief was providing a timeline of the four shootings and describing how his agency had received some 5,000 tips before arresting the 24-hour suspect. <laughs> 24-year-old, sorry, not 24 hours. 24-year-old suspect. I just... This is awesome. So the authorities said the woman is identified as Derlin Roberts. She appeared to be interpreting. Obviously, they thought she really was interpreting. The police spokeswoman said that she showed up and presented herself as being here to provide interpreter services um, and added that because the press conference was put together so quickly, this is their excuse, because it was put together so quickly, the department didn't have time to get an interpreter. So this woman just like shows up, right? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. She just like showed up and was like, I'll do it. Yeah, well, she just showed up. And you know how you can do if you walk into a room with authority and yeah. you present yourself as some someone. I'm trained in ASL. People will believe you. If you can do it with confidence. That's awesome. I mean, not, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not, but. Right. Wow. So I did one more thing. One okay. more stupid criminal. I mean, I have a million of these, but mm -hmm. I'll throw one more in there. So a block of cheese proved <laughs> to be the undoing of a man involved in a massive drug conspiracy. Carl Stewart used it. Encro chat encryption service in a bid to evade detection, adopting the handle Toffee Force to cover his tracks as he supplied large amounts of Class A and Class B drugs. But after the encryption device was busted by law enforcement agencies, Stewart was identified after sharing an image of a block of cheese in the palm of his hand from which his fingerprints were analyzed. The picture is here. So it's just like a piece of cheese and his hand is like this with the... And that's how they analyze it. And the, the cheese is in his palm oh and you can see his fingers. And so they had his fingerprints like on camera. Stuart 39 of Gem Street Vauxhall, which is in England somewhere, appeared at Liverpool Crown Court for sentencing after he pleaded guilty to conspiracy to supply cocaine, conspiracy to supply heroin, conspiracy to supply... MDMA and conspiracy to supply ketamine and transferring criminal property. He was jailed for 13 years and six months. Oh my God. That's pretty cool that, you know, his palm and his fingerprints were analyzed from this picture and it was established that they belonged to him and that's how they got him. That's crazy. I know. Amazing. You know, technology. It's pretty cool. All right. So we are going to take a break. Thank you so much for all of that. So we'll be right back. We're going to talk about City of Angels, which is a 2021 documentary talking about uh, serial killers in the 70s and 80s in Los Angeles. So we will be right back. So apparently I was born in quite the year. Oh, really? Yeah. Era, the era of serial killers was around 1977. Oh, that's, wow. That's really when, um, I mean, we had serial killers prior to that. Understood. But this was the year that really launched, you know, like when you watch movies like my, or a series like Mindhunter, mm -hmm. this, is, this is that time. Yeah. Right? Yep. What we also know is that not for, for some reason, for a, a very specific reason, Los Angeles was the home to many. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that LA was the biggest small city you'll ever visit, I think. I mean, it's really relatively small, even though it's quite large. And there are a lot of parts of the city, especially at that time, where 
people could easily find victims due to sex working. The the laws, I want to articulate this in a way that makes sense to everybody. Places like Skid Row, motels that were used for, I don't know, sex work and things like that. This was a time where even rape laws were different than they are now. And I'll, there's another documentary we'll talk about later that, that goes into this more specifically. But the 1970s and the 1980s, more than 20 serial killers stalk the streets of Los Angeles simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So this documentary, City of Angel, City of Death, has all, it, it's really talks about the, the detectives who were finally able to get a grasp on what was going on and work together to pin down the serial killers. And they did this primarily through getting some of these serial killers to work against each other. And that's where a lot of the psychology of it came in. And again, like when we watch shows like Mindhunter, this stuff is not made up. This is really when police psychology, forensic psychology started to play a role and why many detectives and FBI agents end up getting degrees in psychology because there's a, there's an, a, so much psychology involved in catching these guys. And because of their egos, if they can assist in helping other killers get caught and they get props for that, they're dumb enough to do it. They're narcissistic enough to do it. So this whole documentary is about the area of serial killers that begins with the story about the detectives who found them um, despite we have to remember at this time, especially in the seventies, early eighties, there were, there were no fingerprinting DNA. Um, there wasn't the technology and like the GPS and all the stuff that we have now. And there wasn't really much historical data to go on the way that we have now. Also what we've learned through the show and watching other documentaries is there was a time where jurisdictions did not mess with one another. They would say, you do your work over there and I'll do our work. We'll do our work over here. Leave us alone. And it, I think it was around Richard Ramirez time when they started to realize that that was a huge mistake because he was crossing jurisdictions and it was only within the jurisdictions working together were they able to catch him. Mm-hmm. So City of Angels, City of Death really follows four uh, major serial killers of that time, the Hillside Strangler being the first one. Although we find out that the Hillside Strangler was actually two people mm-hmm. um, and one being his adopted cousin. So uh, the other is the freeway killer. Then we have the sunset strip killer and we have the dating game killer. Mm-hmm. So LA was a prime location, like I said, mixed with the seventies and sexual culture, prostitution, uh, you know, the sex clubs, these guys could really find uh, their victims quite easily. I also think it was a time where people trusted a lot more. Mm-hmm. We didn't have, we didn't realize that this was such an issue. This is kids were getting kidnapped. We had the kids on the milk cartons at this time. Well, the technology right? obviously wasn't in place. And the technology of it. So I just want to introduce these four serial killers that they talk about. So the Hillside Strangler was the first one that they, that they discussed. So the first episode is uh, the detectives juggle multiple investigations at once as a rash of serial killings terrorize the people of Los Angeles. This starts in the mid-1970s. So the two detectives on this case that play a really big role in this documentary are Bob Grogan and Tom Lang. And these are the two guys that start to um, work on the Hillside Strangler case and the Skid Row Stabber. I want to add, there's one other detective, and uh, his name, I'm at a loss for his name right now, but he was actually hired... Um, on the Richard Ramirez case as he was coming off of the Hillside Strangler case. So these detectives, I cannot imagine what it was like to live their lives and literally dedicate 24-7 to try to figure out what was going on when all of a sudden there was an abundance of these guys. It's an obsessive It was, absolutely. So the Hillside Strangler later known as the Hillside Stranglers, is the, basically they're two American serial killers who terrorized LA between October 1977 and uh, February of 1978. And just like I was saying before, this started with finding women between the age of 28 uh, and 12, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So they were actually, uh, there were children that were that fell victims to this. And Kenneth Bianchi and his cousin Angelo Buono Jr., who they found was also affiliated with this, were finally arrested. And they used um, one against the other in the trial. So before the massacre abruptly stopped in February 1978, 
A nine-year-old boy found two of the Strangler's victims. He was with his friends on an adventure, searching for buried treasure in the local dump trash heap. From afar, the boy would later tell the police that they looked just like mannequins. So as this story starts to progress, these detectives now start to hear of other things that are going on in the city and starting to realize that the Hillside Strangler, it's not matching uh, the profile of the, the Hillside Strangler and that they possibly have another serial killer on their hands. So I'm going to talk about... Um, I'm going to go episode by episode and then Shannon, you and I can have a, a conversation of just about the documentary as a whole. Sure. During the second episode, Grogan is, this is when he figures out that the hillside triangle may actually be working um, with another person. And this is, this is when they start to pursue that as they go on to the episode three, the mind of a killer. Now we start to move into the possibility that there is another serial killer out there by the name of the dating game killer. So if we've talked about the dating game killer on this show before, his name's uh, Rodney Alcala. This guy is quite a piece of work. (laughs) And it's really crazy when you watch the episode of the dating game that he was on. He was an American serial killer and a rapist who was sentenced to death in California for five murders committed in that state between 77 and 79. So right around the same time that the Hillside Strangler is, or Stranglers are um, killing their victims. He ends up receiving an additional sentence of 25 years to life after pleading guilty to two homicides committed in New York. This guy, um, not only was he a serial killer, he was such a, a sophisticated sociopath that he would do things like go on to the dating game show <laughs> and literally say to the other two guys on the show, I always get the girl and I'm going to win this. Mm-hmm. And you can watch this episode of him on the dating game. Mm-hmm. When he is chosen, like he knew he was going to get chosen, the woman calls the producer the next day and literally says, do I have to go out on a date with this guy? I have this really eerie suspicion. Yeah, bad about him. vibes. Bad vibes about him. And they Which said- Which was smart. Yep. And the producer said, absolutely not. You do not need to do that, Uh, which was the smartest move because a day or two later, they found another woman's body. So he compiled a collection of more than a thousand photographs of women, teenage girls, and boys, many in sexually explicit poses. In 2016, he wasn't charged till 2016. um, He was charged uh, with the 1977 murder of a woman identified in one of his photos. He's known to have assaulted one other photographic subject and police have speculated that others could be rape or murder victims as well. So imagine living in LA at this time, we have the hillside stranglers going on and now we have this dating game killer going on. Nobody has any idea. They just know that literally bodies are dropping like crazy. In the same time, we now have Doug Clark. Doug Clark was known as the sunset strip killer. Douglas Daniel Clark is an American serial killer. Uh, He did have a female accomplice, which is really quite fascinating. I don't know if you remember this part of the, uh, the the documentary where they're, where they interviewed Carol Bundy and she was incredibly odd. So this is the first time I think I've ever seen, you know, we were talking about Ghislaine earlier, but this is the first time I've ever seen like a female accomplice to, to a, a male serial killer. And um, she essentially helped him find women, sometimes would, um, you know, actually bring him his victims. And then oftentimes she was asked to leave when he would have sex with them and torture them. Um, but well, she, this is another one where it was the Sunstrip killer and then it was Sunset Strip killers, yep. honestly. Because they, they bring <laughs> her in. Yeah. But she was the one who actually turned him in. Yep. So she called and she and, and they never quilly, really quite understood what his mo- what her motivation was for turning him in. Well, it's interesting because on the phone call, she just says, I just can't do it anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I feel like there's some, probably some kind of shame driven something or other that happened, right, for her, where she got triggered and didn't appreciate something that he did probably and then wanted, wanted to hurt him. I think that is what it was because although she was the – I guess the boy, the girlfriend or the partner of this guy, I, I don't really think that he was really 
being intimate with her or anything. I mean, he was simply using her for this. Right. And something, I mean, she's a psychopath too. I mean, we're assuming I haven't (laughs) assessed her either, but we can assume she is in this moment. And I just assume that she got something triggered in her, in her psychopathy that made her angry with him. Yeah. Yeah, and we know that rejection and humiliation are two things that psychopaths absolutely have a a reaction to. So like you were saying, Shannon, we don't know what happened there. Well, and she was only charged with two of the murders, whereas Clark was charged with six. So we'll see. And then the, the last one would be the freeway killer. So the freeway killer, what they did with this guy was this is where they started to use other serial killers who had been incarcerated and in prison to uh, pick their brains to help them profile this guy that so they could catch him. Um, so they, they started to consult with the toolbox killers, not to be confused with the toy box killer who we've talked about on the show before, but very similar in nature, the toolbox killers would take back their victim and torture them with all these really disgusting devices. And so Sousa, one of the detectives started to utilize and said, you know, this is a great way to maybe catch some of these guys is let's get in the minds of these psychopaths. And this is the first time they really started to do that. We see this again a lot on Mindhunter also when they, they start to talk to, um, start to talk to some of the guys in prison to figure out what are we dealing with here? So these were the four main serial, serial killers that they were talking about at this time, um, on on the show. They also talk about the skid row stabber, but one of the reasons why they don't go, they have one of the detectives from that case on there. Mm-hmm. But the, I think one of the big reasons they don't go down that road is because he's still unidentified. I'm assuming it's a he, right. but he's unidentified. He murdered like 11 people that they know of in LA and he, it was mostly in skid row. It's called the skid row stabber. So it was, um, you know, an underprivileged community, they didn't know who it was, so it was much more under the radar, and I imagine that's why they didn't go into that whole thing, because right. they never solved the case. So. Right, right. Yeah, they kind of like talk about him in and out. And they have the- one of the detectives there, because that's cool. Yeah. To talk about it. So going back to the Hillside Strangler for a moment, we've talked about this in a, a previous episode, another documentary that we were talking about a few episodes ago, that the, the serial killer uses the idea of multiple personalities as a defense. So one of the hillside stranglers used this as a defense. He started to say that he had multiple personalities and that a man by the name of Steve was actually responsible for, you know, killing all of these Damn people. Steve. Damn Steve. It's always a Steve. So they do this brilliant thing and they bring in a, I can't remember if he was a, a, a detective. He was a, no, he was a, uh, an expert in multiple personalities. And so he, he tricked, he tricked him and basically stated, listen, you know, people with multiple, multiple personalities usually have a number, number of personalities. And so he said, watch this by the next day, this guy's going to have X amount of personalities. And he certainly did. And they caught him and clearly he didn't get that defense. But again, this was a time where people were using things like the insanity plea and multiple personalities, all of this to get out of, you know, their sentencing. And this was a time where we were highly unsophisticated when it came to understanding multiple personalities. And I think that um, for a lot of these guys, that could have been a really easy way to, you know, going to a hospital versus prison which is why they brought this expert in who said, no, this guy's totally, he's totally in his right mind. He's just really flipping sick. Mm-hmm. So the course of, of, I actually, what did you think about the, the documentary as a whole while watching it? I enjoyed it for the most part. I mean, like most of these documentaries, I think they go on a little bit too long personally. Mm-hmm. Like they just, I enjoyed it. I, the, it's all the rage right now to go from the cop's perspective. That's mm-hmm. like all the rage right now. Because I think because all of these guys that hunted all of these serial killers in the 70s and 80s are retired. They're but they're incredibly eloquent and they're telling their stories. Right. And so and because we're obsessed with true crime in our culture right now, it's like producers are out there getting these guys to frame the stories mm-hmm. so i'm just seeing this rash of documentaries over the last year or two that are all from the cops or the fbi's perspective including shows like Hunter, including all those shows right mm-hmm. and i like that i think it's great i like when they incorporate the psychopathy into it as well mm-hmm. so i sometimes tend to like it better in 
the fictionalized versions, right? The Mindhunter type of thing where it makes it dramatic. I thought this one was pretty good, though, because you got a really good overview of several of the cases that they were tracking along the way and kind of how they were developed. So if you don't know anything about these cases, I think it would be an interesting way, you know, if you're a true crime aficionado, which most people listening to this probably are, you know, it's a really good way to learn about each of those cases and how they kind of put it together. Because of course, you know, the dating game killer wasn't called the dating game killer while he was being hunted because they didn't even know it was the guy on the dating game. So it's like, we see all of this in retrospect, Mm -hmm. but I really like it when they take you through the timeline and they let you know where, what they were thinking along the way. So this one does that really well. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think I, I love the name of one of the episodes is called a new nightmare because as they think they're catching one, then another murder happens. They go, shit, maybe we don't have our guy all the while, like not even knowing that there's, you know, 20 of them out there at once. And why I think this documentary was different is because I think this is the only time in history that we know of anyway, that we had all of this going on at one time so much that they were overlapping that they didn't even know if they had caught the right person because once they had got someone then there was a, a five other women found or children found murdered. And then like, do we even have the right person? I can't imagine what that would have been like to be a detective in the throes of this during well, that time. The FBI didn't on. even have profiles no. of serial killers like down pat. Nope, like there was they no data seem to now as you know, they, they didn't have all of that. So they were running around with their heads cut off really with all these different kinds of murders thinking like, are these all singular? Are they a different people? Are this the same guy? Like what, what's going on here? And I noticed that the documentary says season one. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they'll have more. Maybe they won't. A lot of shows do that right now. They call them season one and then you just and then never, you never see them again. again. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think they always want to give themselves the availability to uh, do more, but mm-hmm. I don't know if they will or not. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm, I think I, there's a part of this era that's just really fascinating to me just to think like this was at a time where they didn't have, it's already hard enough to catch people now, but trying to do this without the technology that we have or the data that we now have, they really were doing this. It was like a grassroots organization in a way. Yeah. And I thought that that's what was successful about it. As mm-hmm. much as we are inundated with these kinds of true crime documentaries. Now they are, the good ones are starting to like float to the top. If Mm -hmm. you, if you watch a lot of them, it it used to be that there would be one and you'd watch it and it would be so great. And it's so interesting that we're watching this, but now there's so many of them on every streaming service, by Mm -hmm. the way, city of angels, city of death is on Hulu. For Mm -hmm. those of you don't know. Mm -hmm. Now you can really start to see which ones are good and which ones are not so great. Because a lot of it is stuff that's just churned out right? Be- to feed our insatiable appetite for learning about psychopathy. And this one, I would say, is in the very solid like B-plus range because I-, I-, I have to give A's to things that uncover new things. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. it's a solid B because it definitely takes you very, it, very successfully through their story, their POV, what it was like to be on the streets during that time. And that's really incredibly interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, well said. And just to say one last thing too, where I think we get a lot of the, there's a lot of, um, when people look back at the 1970s, 80s horror films, they go, oh, gosh, the, you know, the, the, the people were so stupid and they made them so vulnerable and they made them like without any knowledge of anything because at that time people were more trusting. And when you watch this documentary, like the Hillside Strangler, the way that they would get their victims is they would fake police badges. And there was a time that people would go, oh, if I see a badge, I have to, I have to automatically assume that they're a cop and and go with them. And so this was a time that people lived with more innocence and they were more naive in that way, just because the world was that way, that when we look back at, you know, horror movies from the 70s, 80s, it's really not that far-fetched because people lived differently with much more trust at that time. Yeah. I mean, we can watch it, you know, younger audiences can watch something like this and say like, why would they do that? Why would they? Cause they did say yes. Why would they go with that person? Why would they do this? Why would they do that? And we just didn't know that there was the capacity for, you know, 20 or 30 men, mostly men, some women to be killing in one area and dumping bodies all over the place. Like nobody could fathom that at the time. And we didn't question if someone with authority pulled us over just not to digress too much, but I'll share a personal story on my drive home from 
from my trip. I was across the country and I drove because I was gone for the month and I had my two dogs with me in the car. And I was pulled over at one point, not for speeding, but I was, um, he just wanted to let me know that I was a little too close to the semis. And he's like, you know, it could be icy out here. I'm not going to write you to, he was a really nice guy, but because we were on the side of the, the freeway, he actually asked me to get out of the car and come to his car. And my first thought was like, and I said to him, he goes, just, you know, follow me. I don't, he didn't want to like yell through the dogs because the dogs were barking. He seemed mm-hmm. really nice, but my first gut instinct was I'm going to leave the door of his car kind of open. And then he kept saying like, no, come all the way in. And I'm like watching my dogs. And my first thought was like, this guy can murder me right here. Yeah, no, (laughs) but this was, and and I had to do it. I I had to do it. Right. And, 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 you know, I can only imagine, I don't want to go too far down like the social justice route, but I'm thinking, thank God I'm a, you know, a white person and they're not, and they let me off and it was fine. But my first instinct was I'm, I'm looking at all of my surroundings and I'm keeping an eye on my dog and I'm seeing if anybody else is coming up to his car and acting and having a normal conversation. He asked what I did for a living and what I was doing. He was a very, very nice cop, but my gut instinct was this could go bad fast. And this is not something I think people thought about 50 years ago. No, not, I mean, maybe, but not, not the way we do, not the way we do now. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So you're okay. Yeah. It was, (laughs) it was bizarre. It was really bizarre. And then sometimes I think like, you know, did he not realize how, how threatening that might've felt to me? Oh, I know. And he maybe knows he's not a threat. He, I think it, because he had like a baby face, he was very friendly. So he probably thought, oh, she's not afraid of me. She's white. She's this, she, you know, yeah, and I'm going, this doesn't feel very good. No, probably had 200 pounds on you. And <laughs> yeah, he was actually quite little. Oh, okay. He actually was, but I mean, he probably could have <laughs> taken me still, but anyway, again, bringing it back to this is, you know, we lived, they lived at a time where people were just much more, uh, you know, more, they're more likely to just trust that and go, okay. And yeah. I think that's how the Hillside Stranglers had got so many of their victims. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. I enjoyed it. It was Kathy's idea and I watched it and I'm glad I did because it was enjoyable. I don't always uh, watch the true crime documentaries these days until I get a recommendation because there's so flipping many of there's, them. There, and that's why when I saw this one, I'm like, this was kind of a cool time though. There was a lot yeah, going like, on. This could actually be kind of good. And you get yeah. a couple episodes in and you're like, all right, they're doing this well. It's well produced. And they talked about killers that we haven't necessarily, like, People know Hillside Strangler, but most people don't know the Freeway Killer or yeah. the Dating Game Killer. You know, locals so. do, but that's right. Not everybody else. Yeah. So, thank you so much for this. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to actually talk about uh, two or three more different uh, documentaries, true crime stuff that we watched. So, we'll be right back. <laughs> We're back. Where do we go? <laughs> we went to the restroom. Time travel's possible. We went and got ourselves a beverage. I mean, we're talking true crime today, so. We are. Had to take a minute. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about some other true crime stuff we watched. I know that you watched a couple different things, and I know I watched one, and I always have more what the hell stories. So yeah. we'll just see where it goes. You want me to start with one? Yes, please. I, I watched um, the documentary of uh, the death of Kaylee Anthony. Okay. Oh. So, you know, those people who remember the Casey Anthony case from what was it like 2015 or whatever? Maybe it was before that 2015. I think it was Kaylee Marie Anthony was the little girl, uh, her daughter who was abducted allegedly and murdered. And mom was put on trial for, uh, killing her daughter being responsible for the murder. We know that Casey ended up getting off without being convicted And the documentary really goes into how that happened and why that happened. So Kaylee died in 2008. She did, but the trial, I think it took a while to get to the trial. So it may have even been. It was in 2011. 11. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So just to give a background in case people don't know, she was an American girl who lived in Orlando, Florida with her mother, Casey Marie Anthony, and her maternal grandparents who play 
uh, quite a part in this. Georgia and Cindy Anthony. On July 15, 2008, she was reported missing in a 911 call made by Cindy, the mother, who said she had not seen Kaylee for 31 days and that Casey's car smelled like a dead body had been inside it. Cindy said Casey had given varied explanations as to Kaylee's whereabouts before finally telling her that she had not seen Kaylee for weeks. Casey lied to detectives, telling them Kaylee had been kidnapped by a nanny on June 9th and that she had been trying to find uh, find her as well, too frightened to alert the authorities. She was charged with first degree murder and uh, pleaded not guilty. So this is, um, I actually really, I don't know if I was uh, really into it because I was out of it and recovering from the booster or <laughs> I just really got dragged <laughs> in. I'm like laying on the couch with a fever and like tired and just like watching and I got through all of it, but- <laughs> What's it called? Um, it's literally just, I think it's called, oh shoot, it's on oxygen- the death, I think it's just called the death of Kaylee Anthony, okay. but uh, I'll, I'll get that for sure. Maybe you can look while I'm talking I, I about will. this. So this was really interesting because it spoke, it, it gave more context to how Casey, why she wasn't convicted. And just like we, we know from a, a lot of past trials that we've heard, you know, that somehow somewhere in the forensic evidence, things get botched. So one of one of the biggest mess ups in this case was there was a, a a witness who who had found Kaylee's body like a month before they decided to actually go take a look. So he had called the police. He was uh, I think he was like one of those um, meter like electric or gas meter guys that was out in his truck one day. And he was like, I literally just got over. He's like, I had to, I had to go to the bathroom and I needed to find like a woodsy area that I wasn't like exposing myself. So I walked out a little bit further as I was going to the bathroom, I saw like this lump in the grass or whatever, and I didn't touch it, but it was in the area that they had been looking for this little girl. So he called authorities and um, I guess they, they sent somebody out there the next day it took them like 24, 48 hours to get that person out there. The person couldn't find it. They just ignored it. So then he called again. He did his due diligence. He called like two or three times. And then the police were like, now you're just starting to badger us. We've looked, there's nothing there. They end up finally finding her and it ends up being her. And one of the biggest issues with Casey getting off was the fact that they, they didn't have a body and they didn't, they didn't have any evidence that right. that she was dead. So in the midst of the trial, you know, they said that the not guilty murder verdict was met with public outrage and was both attacked and defended by media and legal commentators. Some complained that the jury misunderstood the meaning of reasonable doubt, while others said that the prosecution relied too heavily on the defender's allegedly poor moral character because they had been unable to show conclusively how the victim had died. Mm. So when they did find the body, there was still it was so far into it that they could, they no longer with, you know, certainty could really charge this woman with murder. The whole case is bizarre. Um, the, the grand, the mother, which is the grandmother of the daughter, um, of the granddaughter, excuse me, of Kaylee, you know, is the one who, who essentially calls on her own daughter but then when the police come back and say, well, you said the car smelled like dead bodies. She goes, oh, I was confused. Um, she had just had a pizza in there that sat there for too long. And I think that's what I was smelling. And it goes through all this sort of really weird, bizarre. It takes you through all these different ways of like how Casey was somewhat turned in, but also enabled by her parents. And the the conclusion of this is they, they, when they interview this guy at the very end, who was one of the attorneys on the, on the case, he said, what I really believed happened was the grandfather was swimming with Kaylee and Kaylee drowned oh. and they covered it up um, and put the body in Casey's car. And whether it was something between the dad and Casey, which is the grandfather, the dad and Casey or mom, you know, found out through the process and then started backstepping. Sure. They think that it was a case of negligence that went too far. And then, and then they covered it up instead of, and just then it got right deeper and deeper it. and deeper. But, um, just it, 
But if you do watch the trial and you watch the prosecution, they really didn't have enough and they didn't, they, they relied a lot on more of like the, the probative stuff uh, or the prejudicial stuff, excuse me, where like they're trying to elicit a lot of inf- uh, emotion from the jury without evidence. And it's like, it just didn't work. And, and we, we really don't know to this day how guilty is Casey. I think, you know, just like with, gosh, what is her name? We did a whole episode on John her. Bonet. No, no, no. Oh. Uh, man um amanda knox oh sorry there's a lot of judgment due to her demeanor and things like that but at the end of the day it's like there's just like what would casey's motive been Mm -hmm. that's what you know it seems to me like i'm sort of in the camp of i think it was negligent Mm -hmm. and i think this little girl died by an accident and 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 casey did not do the right thing yeah i don't know enough about the case to have an opinion but i i can tell you the name of the documentary which is called the case of kaylee anthony okay and it's Part, it's three parts. It's on oxygen. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it came out in 2018. It's pretty informative. I mean, it goes through a lot of stuff. Uh, why I liked it again, like we were talking about during the main portion of the show is mm-hmm. it brings different information. Like everybody knows the story or most people know the story of Casey Anthony, mm-hmm. but uh, this was really about uh, giving the daughter justice and, and have, you know, giving her a story and giving her a life to this because she was the victim in this sure. case. And it looks like the same channel did another one called the case of John Benet Ramsey. That's why uh, I had it on okay. my mind because yeah. I was reading about, so they did another one on that. So if, if you're still wanting to discuss that case, there's a whole other one on that. So the, the only thing that throws me off about this case and where this sort of missing link is for my theory is that uh, where they where the prosecution really couldn't nail this down is that there were a lot of searches for chloroform and then the little girl's mouth was also duct tape. So it's like if it was negligent and she drowned, why would they have to do all that to her? Yeah, so, unless that was their way of covering. I mean, I don't know. Who knows, who right? Knows? Making sure she was actually gone. I don't know. But the whole thing, it's if if you're interested in in like the child crime stuff that we, you know, yep. we have a lot of listeners for that. I would recommend. I thought they did a good job with this. Gotcha. I also watched something called The Murders at Starved Rock, which is on HBO. It's a true crime, a three-part documentary series that explores the brutal murders of three women in 1960 in Starved Rock State Park in LaSalle County, Illinois, and the decades of questions and doubts that have haunted the son of the prosecutor in the case as the man found guilty seeks to clear his name after 60 years of prison. So basically, there were these murders way back when, and the man who was convicted of those murders is in prison and he is seeking to be exonerated. And the man who put him there, the police officer who put him there or FBI agent, I'm sorry, I don't remember right at this moment. His son is a documentarian and is doing this documentary on interviewing Chester who's in prison for these murders and his own father who convicted Chester of these murders and kind of going down that rabbit hole of is he innocent is he not Mm -hmm. and so you you do get these interviews with chester and him being you know crying and seeming very innocent and then you get these interviews with the cops including his father because there's also other cops that he investigates that are his father's pretty great like really just answers the questions respects him everything the other cops that he interviews get really defensive (laughs) they get really angry at him you know so there's a little interpersonal drama that happens it's only three parts i'm interested i i thought it was interesting it's one of those ones where you don't get an answer necessarily to your <laughs> to your questions but you know for a docuseries it's only three parts long and you know these were really brutal murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, What's the name of it again? It's called The Murders at Starved Rock, okay. which is where they were found. It's a state park. So oh, Chester, Weger, I think, Weger, in 1961 was convicted of brutally murdering these three women, Frances Murphy, Lillian Oting, and Mildred Lindquist. And they were hiking and bird watching in the state park. He was convicted of the murders and a lot of people tried to get him out, have tried to get him out over the years, I guess. A lot of people believe he's innocent. I guess there's, you know, there's not a ton of evidence. It's kind of lacking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, I feel, I feel like, like we were saying at that time, that was the majority of the problem is they just didn't have. Yeah. They could convict people on a lot less, I mm-hmm. think than they can now, mm-hmm. but you know, the, 
the guy is in, in the documentary. So that's always interesting, right? That's a, that's a get for HBO or what have you. You actually have a murderer or a convicted murderer, I should say. We're not sure if he's innocent or not, or was if he was wrongly convicted. We've done a lot of shows on like the wrongly convicted and how that can go. And the the thing is, is that he confessed. So hmm. there's always that. And but we've also done a lot of shows on how confessions can be coerced and and all of that. Yep, that's true. Yeah. So much like the Netflix documentary series, The Staircase, I know we've talked about that one before, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to probably divide viewers. Like you're going to watch it and you're going to think, this guy's totally innocent. But I think those are the good (laughs) documentaries, right? The ones that like sway you, like where it's so overtly swayed. I like the ones that like you and I can go we have totally different opinions. Yeah. It's like, Oh no, I totally think it's innocent just because like, I believe him and that's just personal opinion or whatever. It's much more of an unbiased. It's like, here are the facts, do what you want with it. And you know, and the, and at one point in the documentary, the father of this documentarian who was the cop on the case, you know, sort of talks about how like one of the things that we did in this case is that we, we talked about his motive being, um, sexual or something and what we really think is that or no we talked about his motive being robbery and actually it was really sexual or one or the other and so he kind of comes out with an admission of like we base this case on this particular motive but what i really think Mm -hmm. is that he this was the motive right so little things like that kind of come out so they're little small things but and and you also have footage from the the woman who is a, I guess, a defense attorney or prosecutor, or whatever, and she wants to open the case back up and try to get him off. So okay. that'd be a defense person. So you have like the in the courtroom footage of that, of mm-hmm. her arguing for it. And then you have the cops in the courtroom arguing the other side. So I think it's a I think it's worth a watch. And it's not that long. Okay. So, yeah. Excellent. What else did you watch? The other thing I watched was the, the Times Square Killer. Uh, which I believe you can find on Netflix. Uh, This is a story of Richard Cottingham, who became known as the Times Square Killer. This was brutal. It's called Crime Scene, the Times Square Killer. That's the full name of the documentary. It's really, uh, it takes place during the 70s again, a time where, again, we're looking at the, the sex worker industry. But not only that, we're looking at when pornography and and the the whole like you know civil lib movement happened sexual freedom coming out of the 60s uh the porn industry really there was this fine line between sexual expression and freedom and and sexual sadism this man clearly was a psychopathic sexual sadist and it tells the story of how he got his victims and it paints it really gives a a thorough atmosphere to what uh, New York City was at that time. It goes into discussing how this was the beginning of rape laws, 1978, because before this, before this guy, prostitutes and 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 even women who weren't in the the, the sex working industry were essentially allowed to be used and abused because sex, you know, the, the sexual liberation, all that men were like, I can do whatever I want and women have to do whatever I asked them to do. And it wasn't until like 1978 and, and this case that we started to look at rape laws in a different way because women were just disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a time where you could literally go into a theater in New York city and watch people have sex on stage, uh, perform it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when this killer started, people started to figure out what was going on. All of these theaters started to close. There became this huge panic around like I could be the next victim to this. Um, and they interviewed some of the people who at that time were working as performers in these theaters and, and some of the stuff that they would witness on the side. So not just with, with this killer, but just how the whole culture of the sexual revolution, how it, they overcorrected and it became incredibly violent leading to, 
you know, the story behind, behind Richard Cottingham. And what was really just gruesome and disgusting about this guy is that he would literally dismember his victims. Mm. And so he would like set a hotel room on fire and, and the detectives would go in and literally like go to the body and find that the head was not even attached or the limbs had been removed. He was incredibly sadistic. Mm. And so he would rape them and torture them, cut them up, set them on fire and and they also talk around the culture too. And this is what I was mentioning earlier is that it, it ended up becoming to the, it got to the point where because they felt such a lack of control around finding this guy and shutting down this industry that the women, the prostitutes were the ones that they started to arrest. Um, John's were, were it, it was easier to arrest women. They thought we could shut this down if we just get these prostitutes, not realizing that um, the you know, who was facilitating this were the Johns and the pimps. And they were interviewing, they had some interviews of guys at the set, like during the seventies and they interview this guy and they're like, what do you think about the, the laws getting harsher for men and not just arresting women? And he's like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a man. So I don't know how I feel about that. You know? And I'm like, oh, this is so 1970. And then they interviewed another guy. He's like, well, I guess it's only fair if women are getting arrested that men should too. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah it, very but different. I, uh, I actually, if you like the serial killer documentaries that are pretty gruesome and graphic and really get in there, it, it this, and makes you feel uncomfortable. This one did this, its job. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. We hope you enjoyed our fully true crime episode today, mostly on City of Angels, City of Death, but we tried to throw a whole bunch of other true crime in there. We're going to do these from time to time because we just like to go down that rabbit hole sometimes. It's part of our... We do. It's kind of where we started in a way. So thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.